Worship on Ash Wednesday, the first day in Lent, normally ends in silence. It's a somber sort of liturgy, as you know, with lots of space for remembering the fragile nature of our lives and our need for mercy and the abiding grace of God. So it doesn't really feel right to end with lots of announcements and chit-chat. We close with a blessing and we depart in silence. Quickly, after this initiation into the season ahead, this season that Christians have marked for centuries as a time for spiritual disciplines, fasting, prayer, reflection, giving alms. And I think as we all sort of head our separate ways into the night with ashes on our foreheads, it can feel a little bit like we are each going off with our own individual Lenten homework. We've all heard about how fleeting and precious life is. We've all confessed our sin. We've all been invited to observe Lent with prayer and fasting. So off you go now. Get busy with your repenting. You've got 40 days. Be sure your assignment is done by Easter. There's no getting around the individual address of Ash Wednesday. The ashes are placed on your head with words addressed very specifically to you. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. They're not about humanity in general here. These are words about you, about the face that you look at when you look in the mirror, and the hands that you wash in the sink. That's essential to their power. Of course, Ash Wednesday was a little different this year. We weren't here in the sanctuary together, and there were actually no ashes. But if anything, the individual character of this day, I think, was all the more evident. Most of us were at home, apart from the community, with no one else for those words to possibly be addressed to but us. And we always start this season with the story of Jesus' temptation or testing in the wilderness. It's an image that fits very well with this idea of Lent as a time for individual discipline and prayer. Jesus is all alone out there, after all. Except that, according to Mark, he isn't. You might have heard that gospel reading this morning and had the sense that something is missing there. Like, didn't Satan have three specific temptations for Jesus, and didn't Jesus come back each time with a verse of Scripture? What happened to all that? Well, Matthew and Luke do tell the story in that way, with lots more detail and dialogue. Here in Mark, however, the episode's told very simply, and with these brief staccato accents. If you blink, you might miss the whole thing. This gospel gives us almost no details at all about Jesus' time in the desert. Nothing about what he ate or didn't eat, nothing about the nature of his temptations, nothing about the specific struggles that he faced. Mark covers this whole ordeal in just two short verses. But in that sparse, bare-bones telling, this gospel wants to be sure we realize that Jesus was not, in fact, alone out there. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. Now, I'm not actually all that sure what to say about those wild beasts. 
some commentators say this detail just gives us one more window into the, the danger that Jesus was facing in this time. In this place with scarce food and water, he even had hungry predators prowling around to deal with. So that's one possibility. Others say we get a glimpse here of the coming transformation of the whole creation. Like Jesus could even lie down next to jackals in the wilderness and there was no threat. It's the prophet Isaiah's peaceable kingdom just starting to blossom. So I don't actually know if Jesus had wild animals for company in the wilderness, but he definitely had angels for company, according to Mark. The angels waited on him, the verse says. I don't know if that means that he woke up each morning in the desert and found a basket of fresh croissants and a coffee waiting for him, or if their presence was more felt than seen. But somehow Jesus was cared for by others in this wilderness time. Biblical scholars are quick to point out that the verb used for what the angels do here, waiting on Jesus, is a really important one in the Gospel of Mark. It's diakoneo, which can also be translated to serve. Later on in this gospel, when some of the disciples will get into an argument about who will get to sit at Jesus' right hand in glory, Jesus will summarize his whole ministry this way. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the same word here. Jesus has come to do for others what the angels did for him in the wilderness, to serve. All that to say, it really is significant that Jesus is not, in fact, alone in the desert. He's cared for and ministered to there, shaped and formed for his life of caring for and ministering to others. And so it actually makes great sense that when he finally emerges from these 40 days of testing, the message that he brings is not an individual one, but a communal one, something for us to do together. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You can't hear it in the English. But the commands in that sentence, the two words that are addressed to us, repent and believe, are plural, in fact. They are group work. I don't know about the context that you grew up in, but as a North American, I am very much accustomed to thinking of repentance and belief as intensely personal, as the sort of thing you work on all by yourself, alone, at home. In my home culture, repentance is generally thought of as asking God for forgiveness for individual sins. A private matter for sure, and belief, well, that's just something between you and God. There are lots of problems with that sort of thinking. The primary among them is that it seems to be pretty far from what Jesus is actually talking about here. The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, doesn't mean go home and close the door and confess your sins. It actually means change your mind. Go beyond the mind you have, in Marcus Borg's translation. Turn around and take hold of something better than what you have now, says Gary Charles. That's a lot for one word to communicate, but that's what we're dealing with when Jesus calls for repentance. 
It's more than saying you're sorry. It's adopting a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, a new way of being in the world, shaped by the fact that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. It's taking hold of something better. And Jesus doesn't command us to go off and do that alone. He tells us to do it together. A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together, his beautiful little book about Christian community. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. That's a profound statement, isn't it? The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. We think of Bonhoeffer as this figure of immense faith and courage who finally took this brave and very lonely stand. And of course he was. But even he doesn't think of Christian faith as a solitary journey. We need others to encourage us, to build us up, to help us believe, to help us take hold of something better together. We need the word that comes from outside ourselves. The Christ in the word of our sister is stronger. So if Jesus wasn't in fact alone in the wilderness, and he didn't come preaching repentance as an individual activity, then maybe we shouldn't be thinking of the season of Lent as such a solitary time. I'm not saying you shouldn't give up something or take on a personal practice. Of course, those can be worthwhile things to do. But the real work of our faith and the real work of this season leaving behind old worries and fears, trusting in the love of God, taking steps toward living with greater justice and mercy, taking hold of something better. All of that isn't meant to be undertaken alone. All of that is group work. I don't know just what that means for you this season. Maybe it means joining one of the Lent groups beginning this week. Maybe it means finding time to go for a walk with someone from the congregation. Maybe it means finding ways to keep reminding yourself that you are part of this community. Maybe whenever you come across the rainbow that you will be invited to put on a window in your home a little later in the service, you can remember that all over the city, those will be stuck to panes of glass in the homes of other community members, reminding them too of God's promises. We may be separated this season, but that doesn't change the fact that the life Jesus calls us to, repenting, believing, following him, is something that we do together. So we open the windows and we breathe in deeply, remembering that even in this wilderness time, we are knit together. Even in this time, we are not alone. Amen.